This episode of The Clear Out was recorded on the 11th of August 2021 at home in Wicklow. And it's a bit of a wide ranging episode, which begins with an epilogue to last week's episode where I discussed the idea of presence and being present and the challenge of being present. And I just drag in a, a biblical reference to put a cap on the idea of being present and focus on who you feel comfortable presenting yourself to. I jump from there to the world of the movies yet again and have a bit of a, not a deep dive exactly, but a, a not a shallow one either. So somewhere in the middle, a bit of a look, a good look at the deer hunter and with particular focus on Robert De Niro's character in it and his performance in it, which leads to a bit of a general critique of his acting. And I wonder if he can be considered a great. And I discussed the idea of greatness and I use the Argentinian footballer Lionel Messi as a comparison point. I also discuss the song, the Irving Berlin song, God Bless America, which features at the very end of The Deer Hunter and talk a little bit about its history and some controversial aspects uh, associated with the song and the singer who made it famous. And I conclude with a little bit of a reflection on the usefulness, the benefits of revisionist history in a sort of, you know, on a historical scale um, public history but also on a personal scale individual revisionist history and that is pretty much it so that's what's coming your way i hope you enjoy it cheers not gonna change my mind leaving the dream behind hi my name is dara clear and you're listening to The Clear Out. How are you today? How are you in this moment? Now in the background, I don't think you can hear it, but I can hear it very clearly. There's a, a young man, <laughs> the son of one of my neighbours, and he is riding a low horsepower motorbike up and down his driveway. And it's incredibly distracting and annoying he must not know about the podcast he must not know about the good work i'm doing here in hashtag blessed and it's it's terribly upsetting on two levels one it's annoying and now it's doubly upsetting because i know he's not respecting the sacred process that is the recording of an episode of this podcast but there you go, he's just living in his selfish world, not thinking, not thinking about the artists and the creative people who live mere fields away. <laughs> he's just revving, revving his engine up and down. Ah, now, fair play to him, huh? Isn't that the way to spend the summer holidays? Oh, my goodness. Anyway. I jest, of course. He uh, he doesn't have to listen to my podcast, nor do you. But now that you're here, sure, listen, you may as well. You may as well sit down and hang on. Hang on for the ride. Um, 
Yeah. So the swimming, the swimming continues. We've had a lot of rain and I did get to the sea since I last recorded, but I have been back in the river last, the last couple of days I had a, got into the river and because of the rain, the level of the river is well up and the current is pretty ferocious. So I have to be extra careful when I'm in there. I went down there yesterday with my daughter and she was quite concerned um and i was assuring her that you know if i did get taken by the current <laughs> if i did get taken by the current um i'd be fine that i'd i'd found her on the the shallows um i'd get broken up on the rocks but i'd be able to stand up and the current would only be racing around my my ankles and shins and i'd be fine so she was uh Placated. And once I was in, she could see I was actually grand. Although she did choose at one point to throw a handful of, well, I did accuse her of throwing stones at me before she went to bed last night. But she said, no, Dada, it was sand. And indeed, it was sand getting thrown at me as I peeked my head up like a curious beaver out of the water. Anyway, I went back down this morning. I was running, I was running my father into uh, the local town for some messages and um yeah i i I managed to squeeze in a quick swim in the river before coming back here to teach some karate my father is no longer on wheels which is which is a problem because his legs don't carry him very far he had a, a little scrape in the car a couple of weeks ago and it has been decided in in his household um my mother has decided no more enough is enough so he asked me if i'd give him a spin into the shops this morning to get his few bits and pieces and and i did ah there you go i'm a tiny good boy thanks you're a little star so anyway that was fine but yeah anyway listen back to the river so in the river it's interesting when it's dark and it you know it, it doesn't get dirty as such but because of the the increased current and because the increased current is coming with you know gray days and gloomy days the, the, the water is darker um and yesterday i was just kind of observing my arms swimming like underneath so like head in the water and my arms were kind of stroking out in the water i mean it's 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 that point of view sort of cinematic perspective just seeing the arms go out again and again like an underwater kind of breaststroke and they're sort of orangey pink in the dark water. That's all I'm really seeing. My watch on my left wrist and the hands stroking out. And it's, it's, I've used this word before. It's, it's kind of meditative. You're just moving into the darkness on and on. I mean, you come up for air, of course. I come up for air, take a breath. But the head is down most of the time. And yeah, it's, it's quite a, quite a, a special experience special unique lovely just go with it just go with it and hope you don't run into a rock anyway the swims they continue they will continue they are a bam a bam not a bam like a wow bop pow zap bam but a a bam B-A-L-M. 
Ah, oh, so good to get in that water. So good for the head. So, so, so good for the head. I'm a lucky boy to be able to get in that water. Anyway, rah, rah, rah. So, I was thinking about many things. But last week, when I was speaking about presence, I didn't get to make a point I wanted to make, which was... Who do you feel comfortable presenting yourself to? That's a very that's a very key thing, I think. Because that really speaks to true comfort with another person and true trust of another person where you feel I don't need to hide anything. I can absolutely just go buff it's all here and last week I was I was trying to tie in (laughs) I was trying to tie in a biblical reference um simply because before I recorded last week's episode I received an email from a from a uh, a blog that I subscribe to the blog is called interesting literature interesting literature and basically they publish short pieces on various famous poems, short stories, plays, works of literature. They're light, lightly academic, very, very quick read. It might just be an, an analysis of the technical aspect of something or um, the symbolism or its success or popularity. Uh, and occasionally they will drag up a, a story from the Bible. And last week it came into my inbox and it was a brief analysis of the story of Jesus and the Gadarene swine. Yeah, I think I'm, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. I'm going to come back to the pronunciation of that in a second because there's an additional um, an additional sort of uh, light point I want to make about that. But yeah, the story of Jesus and the Gadarene swine, which fundamentally is an exorcism story, I gather. Now, the piece I read was pointing out that that word Gadarene is actually a bit of a misnomer and that refers to the location um, where the story took place. Um, and the, the article was suggesting that the place was mistranscribed and they offered three or four different alternatives. I can't remember any of them at the moment, but it, you know, it gives you an idea of the type of thing they go into. And it's, it's beside the point. It's not really relevant to the story. It's, it's, it's our way of locating the story, but that's all. But fundamentally, there is a madman in this area of Gadarene and everyone's like he's mad he's mad he's completely mad what are we going to do and talking to himself and maybe I don't know it doesn't say but I'm, I'm speculating speaking in tongues um, and Jesus comes along and that is the person Jesus is the person that this madman presents himself to he hasn't it seems, according to the Bible, he hadn't sought help elsewhere 
But when Jesus walks along, he turns to Jesus and is like, help me. You're the man. You can help me. Release me from this. Now, in the article, there was a bit of general speculation about maybe he was just, you know, in the grips of some sort of mental health disorder. But certainly in the story from the Bible, and it was from one of the Gospels that they focused on. But which one? Because I came across a new word relating to um, relating to how John, the Gospel of John is different from the other Gospels. The other Gospels are more consistent in how they relay the events of Jesus's life. Hmm. What was that word? It was a new word. I was, I, I'd never come across it before. I'll see if I can dig that out. Anyway, basically what happens is Jesus frees the man of his demons and casts, casts those demons into swine. Yeah, so into nearby swine who subsequently run off a cliff. And that's a bit of a bit of a dramatic story. And I sort of felt sorry for the for the pigs, the swine. No, I mean, imagine you're a pig. You're just living your life, having a bit of a having a bit of a squat in the dirt, eating whatever pigs eat. And pigs are smart. That's what I've always heard. Pigs are very smart. And... um you know, you can imagine the pigs are looking up and they go, oh, who's that fella? And the other pig goes, well, what do you mean? That guy there, the sort of the hippie looking guy. Oh, yeah. Oh, what's he up to? Oh, he's talking to the mad lad. Hmm. Interesting. wonder what's going on there. And they see a bit of a transaction going on. They see Jesus laying on hands, perhaps. And then the next thing, you know, Jesus, Jesus switches his attention to the pigs and the pigs are like, here, he's coming over to see us. What's what's this about? And um, the next thing, the pigs are like, oh, I feel a bit strange. What just happened? Oh, I feel, I feel tormented. I, I don't want to squat anymore. And off they go and throw themselves off a cliff. Uh, that's, that's a bit rough, isn't it? Don't you think? Don't you think that's a little bit harsh on pigs well that is what happened allegedly and i'm I'm actually look i'm just i'm just scanning the uh the article um and that word i was referring to where the word that's used to describe the the similarity of three of the gospels uh distinguishing them from the gospel of of john Synoptic. Synoptic. Syn, I suppose, meaning similar, like synonym. And then optic, as in optic view, so same view. So the synoptic gospels are the ones of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Okay, some of you might be very well versed in this stuff, but I'd never come across that before. I thought that was quite interesting. And yes. They're talking about the different place names. Gergesenes. Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee to the country of the Gergesenes. And the article is saying that that's probably not right. And Gadarenes is not right. 
and they finally settle on Gerasenes, Gerasenes, meaning Gerasa or Gerasa, a Greek town thought to be the same as the similarly named Carsa on the east shore of Lake Tiberius, five miles from Capernaum, Capernaum, where Jesus had previously been. I mean, this is interesting. I mean, this is geography via the Bible and geography being called into question because of poor transcriptions and translations. So, yeah, I find that thing kind of interesting. But anyway, the pigs, the poor old pigs, that's one of the things, one of the things that struck me. And the other thing that struck me was that word gathering. When I've, when I've seen that previously, Jesus and the Gadarene swine, for some reason, and this happens with some other words, but for some reason, I've seen or heard in my head that word, not as Gadarene, but as Gabardine. Yes, Gabardine. And that's not just a, a mispronunciation of a Scottish city. That is, of course, a material for coats and jackets. And most typically, when I hear gabardine, I think of a trench coat, a la Sam Spade, or you, you know, one of the um, you know, one of the kind of film noir or noir kind of literature detectives from the thirties and forties. And so I just have this image then of a bunch of pigs in fedoras and trench coats looking kind of, you know, looking mysterious and suspicious and being very sardonic and unimpressed and making making comments. A tall blonde walked past my window. I knew she was tall because I was on the third floor. So there you go. All the little piggies. Um, I'm beginning to. I'm beginning to doubt. <laughs> I'm beginning to doubt my my what I said about how that story ends. Did they go off a cliff? I thought they had. Maybe they didn't. Uh, I thought they had. Oh yeah, yeah, that's it. The herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea. They were about two thousand, and were choked in the sea. Wow. I mean, I, I don't know what to make of that. That's, um, where's, where's the love for our poor kind friends? Pretty harsh. Pretty harsh. Um, yeah. Oh, well, there you go. No, um, no rashers. No rashers for the, uh, the gatherings that week. 2,000 pigs. That's quite the exorcism. I mean, imagine if you had the imagine if you had two thousand pigs worth of demons in your head. That's um, that's quantifying it now. And as I say, pigs are smart. They're meant to have you know good old big brains. So two thousand pigs' brains worth of demons in your head. That that would be a torment, and I guess you would be very grateful to anyone. Who managed to get that out of your head so you could carry on with your day? Anyway, 
Jesus and the gabardine swine, if you like. Um, yeah, so I did take from that story in the context of discussing presence last week. I, I had been thinking, like, in, this, in that story, the madman, so to speak, presents himself to Jesus. And I do think that that is something that I've witnessed um, I, I have witnessed at different times where you're in the presence maybe of someone who is, and again, I discussed this in the previous episode, the idea of madness, whatever that is, but someone who's mad, and that's a terribly kind of, as previously said, a sort of a very offhand and reductive um, way of describing someone who is really in a radically different place because of their their brain chemistry and whatever else they may be dealing with. But sometimes someone in that condition will bring their gaze to you. And it's as if they have suddenly nominated you as the one person who is currently on their frequency. Because there's nothing quite like the focused look of a mad person and yeah it sort of nails you to the spot and there it's very hard not to kind of be present yourself in that moment so that's another thought isn't it you know to be on the receiving end of such intense presence it brooks no avoiding. You know, if you're <laughs> if you're willing to be there and just be open to that, that's not easy to turn away from that. Um, yeah, but anyway, what's my point? I don't think I have a point. The point is, that's an interesting aspect of madness where there's there can be stillness, stillness and focus and communication communication of their truth uh an opening of the window a desire to share in a very determined way where they're at i've definitely experienced that i've definitely i've definitely i have definitely been on the receiving end of that and maybe i don't know should you feel should you feel lucky should you feel flattered that you have been chosen or should you be very concerned that they go ah you, I recognize something in this person. I recognize a, a fellow madzer. Thank God I'm not alone. Maybe I can offload a thousand pigs worth of my madness to them. Maybe, maybe. Okay, anyway, moving, moving swiftly along. Swift, saying the word swift makes me think of the bird. Swifts and swallows in the, uh, in the stables. There's stables here at hashtag blessed, outhouses, sheds. The uh, there used to be horses in them, but they, they, those horses live elsewhere now. Uh, but there are two or three or four nests of swallows in the stables. The swallow uh, is such a beautiful bird that makes itself present in summers in Ireland. And those swallows, they've got such a beautiful flight pattern. They're so dynamic uh, and flying in and out of the stables. There's little gaps they can get through. Um, 
the doors of the stables are quite old and don't fully close and seal so you see the swallows flitting in and out lovely i like an old swallow and moving on properly now so i was watching just last night yeah the deer hunter the deer hunter michael cimino's deer hunter is it 1978 perhaps filmed in 1977 and it had been in my thoughts recently i mentioned in last week's episode i uh, i recently put up a and i recently put up an article on the clearout.com talking about control and in that article i referred to the deer hunter and i referred to robert de niro he, robert de niro's famous moment in the first third of the film where he lays out his his sort of philosophy of kind of his, his sort of philosophy of absolutism in the face of one of his friends flakiness and lack of focus and lack of organization they're about to set off on their hunting trip they've arrived in the at the edge of the forest and one of the friends hasn't you know has forgotten his boots for the umpteenth time the friend of course is played brilliantly by john Casal, uh, or Casale, Casal, i think who i believe that was his last role he had that amazing phoenix-like career of five or six amazing performances and just died very young of cancer and i believe at the time of the deer hunter he was engaged to meryl streep and there was an actor who could tap into the brokenness of humans the the raw emotional barely contained pain of unhappiness and of being so flawed that it just stares you in the face every day um you know these characters that he played in the godfather movies as well um and Dog Day Afternoon, which I haven't seen for a very long time. And then the other one was uh, Francis Ford Coppola's other great movie from the 70s, The Conversation. Um, yeah, but anyway, so John Cazale is playing the flaky friend and he wants to borrow. He wants to borrow Robert De Niro's character's extra boots because <laughs> Robert De Niro's character, Michael, so organized, wearing all the cool gear and he has spare boots. And De Niro's like, you're not getting my boots and you know he's getting a bit of abuse off uh, off John Cazal and then De Niro's just like he holds up a bullet he's loading his rifle and he holds up the bullet and he says Stanley look at this this is this this isn't something else this is this from now on you're on your own and that's it and it's it's this kind of absolute uh, you know philosophy of irreductibility where you can't get something more solid and unarguable and unambiguous than a bullet and a bullet of course is a very powerful symbol uh, a life or death symbol which as i wrote in the the piece on the on on, on the website it it foreshadows the very dark experiences that de niro 
and two of his pals are who are all about to head off to Vietnam it foreshadows the experiences they're going to have there where they get basically they're captured and forced to play Russian roulette and of course it has a profoundly traumatic impact on all of them um and I suppose in the context of what I was writing about control the the de Niro's the, the de Niro character's position of sort of harsh deterministic reality and reducing things down to steel I suppose let's put it that way and reducing things down to the pull of a trigger so fundamentally life is a a zero-sum game you act or you don't you live or you die you're the hunter or you're the deer um later on in the movie there's a second hunt when michael has come back he's come back from vietnam and he goes on the hunt the other two guys aren't around and he lines up the kill shot he has a a 12 point deer a 12 point buck in his sights and he can't pull the trigger or rather he chooses to to shoot high he lets the the rifle just jerk upwards to the sky and shoots high and, and the deer escapes and i suppose the message is he views the taking of life differently now that he's a veteran uh, of a, a very a truly horrific war and of course historically the vietnam's war the vietnam war is regarded as america's first failed war and um, their first lot well, you know if, if not a loss a very a very ambig a very ambiguous um victory i i, I mean i'm hesitating to use the victory because it doesn't seem like it was a victory at all and it just put such a scar on American confidence. I think shook it shook America to its core. Anyway, um, the Deer Hunter is an interesting movie, and it's it's not a perfect movie by any means, and it does seem it has quite a few detractors. Um, I mean, I listen to I listen to a podcast of wildly enthusiastic film fans who revisit their favorite movies and discuss them and break them down. Favorite scenes, favorite lines. Should it have been cast differently? What was its impact? What's its legacy? And they might spend an hour, an hour and a half, two hours, just enthusiastically riffing and going back and forth on a movie, and they those guys haven't done the deer hunter and it seems they're not big fans of the deer hunter um and i'd like to get to the bottom of that that podcast if you're interested is called the re-watchables re that's not a we re re the re-watchables which you can find on spotify or wherever really good fun a candy floss podcast is how i think of it um in any case i the, the deer hunter came on the tv last friday um I just, I just thought oh here i'll just watch the first little bit of this and i ended up watching the first well over 
the first half of it and just getting kind of sucked in and just going on the journey with those characters again and really just sort of loving the that 70s style of acting and you know from that kind of that golden era of 70s movie making the auteur era the new hollywood era and just looking at this great cast of actors uh meryl streep of course is in there and christopher walken as one you know one of the most tragic characters in the movie the aforementioned de niro and john Cazal. A great performance by George Zunda. And I don't think I've seen him in much else other than <laughs> other than Basic Instinct. Basic Instinct, the uh, the erotic tr- thriller. That was a that's a that's a genre all of its own. The latest erotic thriller starring Michael Douglas and a stunning Sharon Stone. But in that movie George Zunda, that's a D Z de Zunda. Zunda is Michael Douglas's partner who wears a, a cowboy hat for some reason. Um, it's not a Western and they're not in Texas. Um, but in The Deer Hunter, he's actually brilliant. Such a good part. He's one of the kind of, he's kind of a peripheral character, really. Like he's, he runs the bar and he's just this you know, wildly enthusiastic laugher and drinker and hugger. Uh, And in that extended sequence at the start of the movie, which takes us to, uh, takes us through the, the, the the day of the wedding of, um, of Stephen, one of, uh, one of the three guys who heads out, uh, played by John Savage. He's the other great actor. Um, And they're in this sort of Russian Orthodox, Russian American community in Pennsylvania a steelworks town it's pretty rough and pretty grim hardcore working class and like this was a point i think that chimino was trying to make that like you know the guys that went out to vietnam were just you know normal guys and they were drafted but a lot of guys just stood up and they did it quite idealistically and went out and went okay i'm gonna i'm gonna fight for my country and really the focus of the deer hunter is the the personal impact on those guys and on that small community um and it remains a very sort of personal journey it's not really overtly political um it's really just about that experience of of the unknown soldier i mean that's that's ultimately what it is and the the devastating impact of war on young men and yeah George Zunda, as I said, he's 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 a great character and does this wonderful job just being a witness to it all and a great laugher. And then very movingly at the very end of the movie, the final sequence of the movie, he's a he's he's a great crier as well. Um the the Christopher Walken character um just ends up on an unavoidable sort of an unavoidable trajectory to, to death he becomes addicted to the experience um that sort of nihilistic not caring for his own life 
um, compulsion that that started with the forced playing of Russian roulette when he was a prisoner. And at the end of the movie, De Niro, the De Niro character, goes back. He goes back to get Nick to save him and sits down. The only way he can get to him is to pay his way into one of these illegal Russian, <laughs> as opposed to the as opposed to the legal, <laughs> the famous legal Russian roulette scene, you know, which was sponsored and, uh, you know, which was great fun for the whole family. No, of course not. He gets his, pays his way into a Russian roulette game in the back streets of, uh, you know, of a devastated Saigon, a Saigon that is in the process of being fully abandoned. And he buys his way into a game so he can sit down and play against Christopher Walken, his friend, to just to try and get through to him. And sadly and tragically, uh, it ends with Christopher Walken's character. You know, the bullet comes around in the, the chamber of the revolver and, and he, he shoots himself. And it's it's still, you know, massively confronting, disturbing, upsetting scene. Um, and I think, you know, it's, it's De Niro's, reaction in the scene you know is is, is very good um and this is what i was going to get to right here we go so I'm, I'm not gone i'm not gone from the deer hunter completely but de niro he has in the middle of the movie a love scene with meryl streep or you know there's a sequence a few scenes and he and meryl, and meryl streep is christopher walken's girlfriend in the movie but she is clearly quite taken with Michael, De Niro's character. Um, and so when Michael comes back, they are drawn to each other and there's a, a love scene. And I'm not the first person to say this, but I'm looking at De Niro. And like he's, you know, he's a young man then. He's probably only in his 30s, looking, you know, looking fit and young and well. Jeez, you're looking, tis fit and well, you're looking, Robert. Well done. But I was looking at him and I was kind of going, he, this guy has no use for women. And that's, I don't, I, that's a very, is that a rough way to say it? But there's no chemistry. And I mean, I know they did do another movie in the 80s. Isn't Falling in Love? Is that what it was called? Sort of a suburban, commutery, New York love story. I, I don't think I've ever managed to sit through the whole thing. But no chemistry whatsoever. And Meryl Streep is great. She's lovely in it and very believable um really really nice and yeah de niro i don't know what it is i don't know where, what that limitation is in him as an actor and it, look it's true for other actors tom cruise is another actor who i defy you to prove to me that he has chemistry with any female co-star ever um it's the tom show and de niro it's different it's i don't like de niro has a very different energy to tom cruise um, but De Niro is more likely to have chemistry with other men so and not I don't mean in a you know in a in an in an amorous sense um, not gay love not male desire but that kind of fraternal bonding the fraternal love I mean that's that's really De Niro's wheelhouse like he kind of brings the intensity um, but he's comfortable among his brothers 
among his amigos, which is why I think he's done well in the the gangster genre. Um, you know, really good in The Godfather too, really good in Goodfellas as well. And if he's not doing that, he's kind of a loner. Like he does the intense loner thing very well. Oh, this is one that occurred to me. Speaking of the intense loner, so of course he played a psycho and murderer in Cape Fear where fundamentally he's replaying or doing his version of the Robert Mitchum role from the the, the earlier version of the movie. I guess that's a 50s movie. And he does have that great scene. I mean, great, you know, disturbing, unsettling. He has that great scene in Cape Fear where he is effectively seducing the young Juliette Lewis who is in the movie the daughter of Jessica Lange and Nick Nolte and she's a drama student and she comes for her drama tryout and walks into the theatre in her high school and the theatre is dark and there's a sort of a... The set, if I recall correctly, is like a doll's house and De Niro, is he swinging upside down and he's playing... uh, is he playing he's playing an Aretha Franklin track do right woman do right man whatever yeah and he flirts with her and it it maybe maybe the scene works because of Juliette Lewis being so good and she was great at those roles like that that early career of hers um, you know that sort of uncomfortable awkward teenage sensuality sexuality the burgeoning hormones um flirting but kind of scared of it and she just walks that line beautifully and that my my memory of that scene is that there is like there's a chemistry but of course it's he's a predator so it's this predatorial scary um chemistry between them and he, i guess he's like the big bad wolf in that scene yeah, anyway, but De Niro, no chemistry. Um, and it just made me think, you know, De Niro is considered one of the great actors, one of the great screen actors. And yet there is that fundamental dimension missing from his work. And I wonder, can, you know, like, like how many films are we talking about that we go, they are, that's what made him a great and probably we're going to go straight to the likes of Taxi Driver and Raging Bull. I mean, that's probably the artistic apex of his career. Because as he moved on through the remainder of the 80s, um, you know, he was more playing these smaller parts and a bit more extreme. Like he played, he played a, you know, a version of the devil in... Um, Oh my goodness, I've just gone blank on the name of that movie. Mickey Rourke, Angel Heart, uh, the Alan Parker. It's it's a New Orleans, New Orleans, New Orleans. A New Orleans-based thriller. And he plays a character called Lou Cipher. That's right, folks. Lou Cipher, as in Lucifer. And has pointy fingernails, which he uses to peel hard-boiled eggs. And he also played... Um, Al Capone in The Untouchables memorably with his scar and in that memorable early scene in the movie where he is at a white uh, like a a black tie dinner 
you know, and is speechifying to his his minions around a table and suddenly produces a baseball bat and bashes one of their heads in on the table in a typical De Palma flourish. And you watch the blood ooze across the white tablecloth. Anyway, that was kind of De Niro's high point um, until he got into those other roles. The other person he had great chemistry with, I'm going to argue, is Charles Grodin in Midnight Run. So there you go, another man, you see? And that's a very, very, very funny movie. And De Niro, I think, is great in it. Really good. Um, And I thought, yeah, here he is. And he showed a kind of his, he had good kind of comic instincts, but against a true comic great in Charles Grodin, who only passed away a little while ago. Um, So he was doing the comic stuff long before he he got into the, the meet the parents territory so my question then about De Niro is can he really be considered one of the greats (laughs) that's controversial I mean he is he is great and those roles you can't you just can't take you can't take those movies away from him but he's done a lot of stuff that's really not that interesting as well and the lack of that kind of completeness in his in his acting arsenal I wonder if that just kind of takes away a bit um and yeah, I'm going to I'm going to come back to the idea of greatness in, in a little moment just to sort of flesh that idea out. Or will I do it now? No, I'll do it now. I'll do it now. So listen, here's why I was thinking about greatness, because the Argentinian footballer Lionel Messi has just left the football club Barcelona, who he has been with for years and years and years. I think it's a 17 year career he's had with them and he's. He is largely considered one of the greatest players of all time, if not the greatest player of all time, the greatest player of his generation. Uh, In fact, my cousin and I, my cousin who lives next door, hashtag blessed, he and I were discussing the whole Messi-Ronaldo argument. That's Cristiano Ronaldo, the the wonderfully self-involved Portuguese player who is a machine, a a self-made machine. I've never considered him a better player than Lionel Messi. Uh, I think he has achieved amazing things by force of will. I think he has a stronger mentality for big games. They seem to speak to his ego. Uh, That's Ronaldo. Um, But Messi, just for pure footballing genius and magic and you know inherent god-given talent something he was born with just talent and footballing magic oozing out of every pore there's no one like him there is no one like him and his consistency and what he's been able to do what he has been able to do consistently and how he's been able to thrill and astonish and amaze and astound over that lengthy career at Barcelona, that, I think, qualifies him for greatness. And he has gone to, he's left his club in controversial circumstances. They're in dire straits financially. And it's just been a bit of a mismanaged thing. And he was distraught at his final press conference the other day. And he's gone to one of these other 
bloody super clubs uh psg paris saint-germain paris saint-germain which has multiple superstars on redonkulous amounts of money i mean the football model is broken it is broken all these players are overinflated and overpaid um and a lot of other people are getting rich um behind the scenes you can't blame the footballers just like you know you can't blame hollywood actors for getting the big money it's the system but i think messi is truly great and he captured something that is magical he's he captured something that invites speculation about the mystique about the unknown about the undoable and the unthinkable and i think when uh, a personality when a person whatever their area is when they they tap into something and maybe actually maybe it has to be someone who is working in some form of popular arena so sport and entertainment are clearly clearly extremely eligible the way a figure can capture something the way so many people can fall in love with that figure um I mean, I don't think anyone, and I don't think anyone would question the greatness of Michael Jackson, for example, the the, the child abuse stories, notwithstanding. But I mean, I, I can I can never think of Michael Jackson and that aspect of his life without thinking of him as a victim as well, and the extremely troubling and traumatic childhood he had at the hands of a bullying father. Um. But again, that might be for that's for another another day's discussion. But greatness, something ineffable, something that we can't quite put our finger on. It's a combination of everything that coalesces or becomes this other thing that has its own aura, its own energy. It becomes its own entity. And when I start using those terms. I don't know if that applies to De Niro. I don't think it does, to be honest. Now, I like De Niro a lot, and I love those performances that I've referred to, but I would argue someone like Brando had more of the unknown in his acting, more of the magic, and Brando was definitely capable of that kind of chemistry, but he was a much... There was a lot more animal in Brando. He was much more of a, a panther, more slinky and more sensual and more expressive, I think, physically and more expressive sensually than De Niro could ever be. Um, yeah, so I don't know. There's something, I think there's something about the humanity, that, that palpable humanity that you get off a Brando performance, particularly those performances from the from the fifties. You know, Streetcar Named Desire perhaps are on the waterfront. Um, particularly young Brando, something else. And it's funny, De Niro actually has a yeah, he's kind of got like a dehumanizing thing. He's cold actually, and that was the thing in the Deer Hunter. And I watched the rest of the movie last night, and I have it on DVD, and I watched the rest of it. And that he had that scene with Meryl Streep and he walked away and, you know, yeah, I don't know. Now, he's meant to be, of course, he's meant to be turned hard by the war. 
but um interesting yeah i don't know there's something about it just that one little moment he walks away from meryl streep walks out of the kind of the trailer where he used to live with the christopher walken character where meryl streep has been saying while they're at war and he walks away from her going oh i'm just you know dist- i feel distant i'm dead something like that I'm, I'm paraphrasing badly but he just i don't know i just didn't believe it and then he comes alive when he's with the men but anyway there you go so moving now after discussing greatness moving to the end of the deer hunter and i think this is a scene that's the sequence at the end it's basically it comes on the morning of nick's funeral so the, the christopher walken character um the nero brings obviously arranges for the body to come back and there's a funeral in the town and you've got those that wonderful russian orthodox church temple in the background above the you know the normal houses and it's a kind of a cold morning and they have the funeral and then that core group of friends withdraw to george zunza's zunda's pub bar where they have breakfast and there's a lot of different interactions happening the john savage character who had to have his legs amputated after a spinal injury falling from a helicopter as he tried to escape in vietnam um he's there having been sort of rescued or forced to leave the veterans hospital that he was staying in in kind of his in his sort of defeat in his masculine defeat in his trauma not wanting to come back to his wife who he had only just married before going to war but De Niro brings him home from there so like the Niro, the De Niro character is a very heroic character in the context of the movie but that final scene where you have I don't know about 10 actors the the very many interactions and the overlapping dialogue and De Niro's character is trying to make eye contact with Meryl Streep throughout and she's uncomfortable and they're all not expressing their grief about Nick and let's be clear here like Christopher Walken in his young prime looking fantastic moving with that dancer's body of his and the shift into the wraith like haunted figure at the end of the movie it, like it, it's that in itself is haunting and saddening and he plays it so so well he, he won i think he won the best supporting actor that year at the oscars for that performance um you know in a way he was he was this kind of angel almost you know amongst the group um you know that the physical the prettiness and the smoothness and the light and then to see him at the end just sort of hollowed out with the dead eyes and then just before he kills himself in that final horrible scene there's just a glimmer of oh he's back and then bang he's gone but that final scene back in the bar is really really good really good i mean i love it and george zunda retreats to the kitchen to make he's he's just basically he goes in to whip eggs to make eggs for breakfast and he just he can't stop himself crying as he's making the eggs and it's a beautiful beautiful moment but 
they all end up back around the table and someone calls for beer and there seems to be like a there seems to be shots as well of some alcohol and then beer comes out too and they're having coffee and they're going to have eggs and George it's George Zunda who starts in the kitchen he starts to sing to himself sort of humming and singing and it's been shown earlier in the movie he has a good voice singing in the choir but he starts to sing uh, Irving Berlin's God Bless America and he's singing it to himself and he comes out from the kitchen and then Meryl Streep kind of starts singing quietly to herself and then the rest of the the friends start to sing it until they're all singing it um, quite gently and beautifully and they had they had just kind of cheersed Nick before the song started and that's how the movie, the movie ends with them just coming to the they sing the song through to the end and it ends on freeze frame um, and then it's not the final scene of the movie the final scene gives us a flashback to all the friends at the wedding before leaving for Vietnam and then it fades out to the credits but really the end is that scene everyone wearing black Stephen, the John Savage character, sitting in his wheelchair, his wife in, in black, the other friends, John Cazal. Um, and it's done really well. It's something the 70s movies captured so well, and Chimino did really well in this movie. I mean, of course, later, Chimino was held responsible for sinking United Artists um, when his shoot of Heaven's Gate spiralled way, way, way over budget and that was considered a disaster that sank a studio and brought the new Hollywood era to an end. Although Heaven's Gate has been reevaluated and sort of reinstated as a flawed masterpiece, um, well worth checking out. Well worth checking out. But let's, I'm not going to I'm not going to dwell on Heaven's Gate right now. I do want to talk briefly about God Bless America. Now. I know some critics resist the singing of that song at the, as the end point of the film, that it's, I guess, overly sentimental or overly jingoistic. Um, Irving Berlin apparently wrote it around the time of the First World War um, and he was going to use it in some comedy but thought it was too serious and then it later was sung by Kate Smith a white American singer and it became her song and she used to sing it at sports events and sang it live on the radio I think she was known as the voice of American radio and she sang it for years and years and years and a couple of sports teams the New York Yankees and uh, is it the Philadelphia Flyers I think it's a hockey team they took her they took her and her version of the song as their sort of personal um, their their kind of club anthem, and her as the uh, the kind of representative of the song, and in fact in Philadelphia I think they even put up a statue of her, and then it emerged a couple of years ago she died in nineteen eighty six, but a couple of years ago, twenty nineteen, someone pointed out that oh well did you know before Kate Smith sang that and became you know the American. The, the, the voice of American radio and became forever associated with that song that unofficial anthem 
that she sang racist songs in her earlier career, one of which is called That's Why They Made the Darkies. And there's a, like a song with Piccaninny in the title. And so in the sort of current climate of um, identity, politics and culture wars, she got cancelled. And so the statue was removed. Um, and I know her own sort of estate tried to defend her and go, look, this is we can't apply today's standards and sensibilities and political positions um, to someone of her era. Um which I fundamentally agree with. Um, I'm just, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to. I don't want to get into the whole should statues be taken down thing. That's it is tricky territory. But the other person who found that song a bit much was Woody Guthrie. Um. I think there was something, I guess, something lyrically. I mean, melodically, I think it's really quite lovely. It's a, it's a lovely song, God Bless America. Um, lyrically, maybe it's just a little bit too on the nose with its we're so special and God loves us. Um, and he's looking over us. I don't know. I mean, I don't know how strongly I feel about that. It's not that big a deal, I suppose. But Woody Guthrie, in response, apparently wrote, this land is your land. This land is your land. This land is my land. Um, and, a, you know, Woody Guthrie's sort of socialist man of the people credentials were never in doubt. Um, you know, uh, inspired Bob Dylan, amongst others. But, of course, Woody Guthrie then, he he has, he's, he found that song being challenged uh, by Native Americans, Indigenous Americans, kind of going this is just another example of you know white americans completely misunderstanding the the colonial story and misunderstanding the uh the story of occupation and genocide and cultural um cultural erasure uh so i suppose in a way for native americans they think maybe the song should be renamed this land is not your land uh, or this land was our land first uh that's um you know that's that's yeah i mean i mean this is this is what you deal with i mean this is these aren't irrelevant points um but i think you're dealing with uh, cultural attitudes. You're dealing with the... Fundamentally, what you're dealing with is winners. Winners write history. And it takes a long time for revisionist history to to settle in a place where it's accepted to be a better version of history and a, a fairer version of history. And I think in many places around the world that's that's an ongoing battle an ongoing battle to go hold on a second let's look at this again let's reappraise the past and let's see where it can take us and let's see if a reappraisal and a rewriting and a reframing of the past can help us be better now and if you think of it that way, 
I don't think that's too unlike an individual's attempt to process their own past and an individual's attempt to make themselves better, to help them arrive in a better place. And if you think about it, personal history, an individual's personal history is incredibly powerful. I mean, that is the story we tell ourselves. That is the story that informs who we are. That is the story that has led us to this moment. And that is the story that has given us all the reasons for our failures and our defeats and what we haven't done. And that is the story that perhaps gives us all the reasons for our anger and our resentment and our sense of being wronged and therefore that is a story that is worth (laughs) it's worth not wallowing in but it's worth revisiting it's worth revisiting to go did i get it right did i get the history right and is there another way i can look at this history that empowers me now I can't empower myself. You can't empower yourself in the past. You can't change what's gone on. But it's interesting that you can, through different different sort of therapeutic approaches, through different, um, I don't want to say brain exercises, it, that makes it sound too trivial, too trite. It's not that. But there are processes by which we can understand ourselves better and understand our pasts better um and in a there, there, i mean there is there's a therapeutic approach neuro-linguistic programming which fundamentally allows you to rewire your memories and rewire your convictions about yourself and reframe how you position yourself in past narrative and that can be a very helpful thing if you are struggling to get past yeah if you're struggling to get past certain traumatic experiences if you're struggling to get past convictions about yourself that hold you back that hold you down that do not let you stand proud that do not let you stand strong um yeah so I don't know. I don't know where that leads us. I mean, that's just a general bit of a bit of advocacy for. I think if we're afraid, okay, this is really this is the conclusion. I mean, if you're afraid to look at the past, I think that's a problem. That's a type of denial, and a lot of people do seem to reach that point of ah, it's ancient history. Ah, I don't want to go there. I'm kind of a believer in, well, that's fine. Like, I mean, if it, if it genuinely doesn't affect you, like if, if it's not impinging on you, if it's, if, if, if you're a, you know, mostly a rounded, happy, content, positive person at peace with yourself, then great. Yeah. Like, I mean, you've probably done the work or you've been blessed with certain resources that have allowed you to cope and transcend. But if that's not the case, if it's simply just denial, 
if it's simply just it's too painful it's too difficult it's too icky i don't want to face myself i don't want to face my pain or my you know my um my uncomfortable emotions i don't want to walk back into those rooms i mean that's that's not a bad analogy <laughs> you, know, you know there's rooms you've been in where you're going i this is this is not a good place to be and everything about it makes me feel deeply uncomfortable in my own skin i just want to get the hell out of that room and why in god's name would you would you want to return to that room but then that makes me think of <laughs> that makes me think of luke skywalker record scratch what luke skywalker you heard me you heard me luke skywalker in his dream sequence in the empire strikes back he is beginning to engage with some stirrings of an understanding that perhaps there's a very strong undeniable connection to darth vader lord vader the uh the, the prince of the dark side and in his dream sequence he's entering into this kind of cave-like structure in a in a swamp uh, he's been doing some jedi training with yoda the jedi master and in his dream sequence he's in the swamp where yoda lives and he walks into this very dark ominous looking cave and comes face to face with that which he fears the most which is darth vader and they have a lightsaber battle and luke triumphs in his dream and knocks darth vader's mask off his face but whose face is under the mask luke's face dun 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 it's so freudian yeah so that that just came in my head it just came in my head talking about going into spaces we don't want to go into i mean fundamentally fundamentally that is the position of denial that is the position of there's unfinished business there's stuff that needs to be addressed i know it is going to take me right out of my comfort zone it's going to take me right out of this fetal position where i'm hugging my pillow or in my case my velvet cushion memories i used to have a beautiful brown velvet cushion I, my daughter loves this she loves teasing me about my my brown velvet cushion i loved velvet when i was a kid um i just loved the feel of it will you give us a feel of your velvet will you go on you know you want to a velvet cushion a little velvet cushion that uh my friend's mother had made for me and she put a little owl face on it and i used to snuggle into that and i'd suck my thumb and I'd work a corner of the cushion, rubbing it, rubbing it to one side while I sucked my little thumb. I could not have been happier. So that's uh, that's where I'd like to return to. You know, that's that's the denial position. If I'm spacing off, if my wife is asking me some tough questions about the the real life challenges now, <laughs> and my eyes glaze over, 
that's where I'm gone. I'm gone to my little velvet cushion, sucking me out thumb, and I can't hear anything, just the suck, suck, suck of the thumb as I rub that velvet right up near my cheek. So happy, so, so far away. Keep speaking, wife. I'm not here. I'm with the velvet cushion. Meow. And on that note, I'll leave you with one final bit of news from Hashtag Blessed. My wife came home the other day with a bag and a very mischievous smile on her face. And inside the bag was a beautiful tabby kitten that she gifted to our daughter. Now, wasn't that nice? And our daughter christened the kitten Ruby. So that's what we're dealing with now. We've got another another animal in the clan. The latest member to join the podcast's production team. A maniacal, scatty, destructive, chaotic, unbelievably cute tabby kitten. Welcome, Ruby. There you are now. Listen. No, don't listen. Stop listening. Listen for one more minute while I say goodbye. Goodbye and thank you for listening to these musings on greatness. Greatness and anthemic songs and very good films and interesting actors and nice kittens. You can, you can contribute to the podcast by using the supporter link which will be there wherever you're listening to this you can also become an ongoing contributor using the patreon link that's at patreon.com forward slash the clear out i'd appreciate anything you could give i'd appreciate you spreading the word if you enjoy the podcast popping it up on your social media facebook the dreaded facebook the dread facebook or wherever um i'd welcome i'd welcome more listeners okay so there you go listen take care of yourselves have a good week and i'll be back soon with more mind yourselves take care all the best bye